It's a well-known fact that the nuclear industry in all of its many forms will try to get away with anything it can, especially if it costs money, without regard to the long-term impact on people or the environment. And the opportunity for the public to speak truth to nuclear power comes along so infrequently, it almost feels that there's no way to make those responsible for public safety listen up. So when you attend a public meeting to face these tone-deaf nuclear power brokers and someone stands up to tell the Nuclear Regulatory Commission representatives... What's really terrifying, what's really, really horrifying is that the NRC has chosen not to enforce the law because Southern California Edison wasn't aware of the law. Now, Southern California Edison has 189 attorneys on its staff, and one of the fundamental premises of the law is that ignorance of the law is no excuse. So I'm asking you now, please do your job, enforce the law, and impose criminal penalties when criminal laws are violated. Yeehaw! Well, you can only hope that something like that will wake up the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to act before it's too late. And they find out the hard way that they, too, are not immune to the consequences of their actions. And they are stuck in the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we examine recent developments in the battle over San Onofre and what to do about its 3.6 million pounds of radioactive nuclear waste. We talk with Nina Babiars, a board member of Public Watchdogs, a public safety advocacy group headquartered in San Diego, California. We'll also hear testimony from last week's community engagement panel, where members of the public were given no more than three minutes each to make their concerns known to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission representatives and Southern California Edison. Three minutes. Could they spare it? We'll also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than appeared in the unredacted Mueller report. Or so we think. Nobody knows yet. But all of it will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 2nd, 2019, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out here in the U.S., where on Friday, March 15, the Indian Point Unit 2 nuclear reactor which is located just 35 miles from Broadway, shut down in a scram after a malfunction in an electric generator. Two weeks later, it was back online as of Monday, April 1st. No, that's not a joke. They really tried, but it didn't take 
because it shut down again as of April 2nd. Unit 3 is also shut down, this time for the last refueling before it shuts down permanently in 2021. But dig this. State officials say the shutdowns have not impacted the state's power supply. Well, if you don't need the power from the nuclear reactors, why are you continuing to run them? No immediate safety concerns were identified, according to Indian Point's owner, Energy, but we all know that the word immediate is code for, eh, by the time anything shows up, we'll be long gone from here with the money in pocket. In Florida, Florida Power and Light has won the battle to store radioactive waste under Miami's drinking water aquifer, despite the fact that multiple studies have warned that waste could one day seep into the drinking water. A group of activists called Citizens Allied for Safe Energy, or CASE, tried to stop FTL's plans, but their legal petition was shot down this past Friday because, according to NRC documents, it was filed, quote, inexcusably late in FPL's application process. Case President Barry J. White said, this was thrown out on procedural grounds. The science is still there. In Utah, the state Senate took another step towards allowing energy solutions to accept shipments of depleted uranium at its radioactive waste landfill near Grantsville, only 36 miles or 58 kilometers from Salt Lake City. The state has thus signaled its support for the company to take large amounts of a kind of low-level radioactive material that grows more hazardous over time. We'll have links up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 406, for a couple of interesting articles. One is Fairwinds Energy Education doing a smackdown on Michael Schellenberger's infomercial for the nuclear industry saying that Fukushima, Chernobyl, and Three Mile Island were, eh, no big deal, and proved that nukes are safe, which is, like, insane. This one is entitled, Fukushima, Chernobyl, and Three Mile Island Prove While Nuclear Power Will Never Be Inherently Safe. It's written by Grayson Webb, edited by Margie Gunderson, and well worth your time. Reporter Christine Legere in the Cape Cod Times has an interesting article about a startup that claims to have a system for permanent nuclear waste storage other than anything that has been floated so far. It's an interesting article, again, worth your time to read it. And a link to a government site on how to survive radiation exposure, guidance on diagnosis and treatment for healthcare providers. All will be up on NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 406. In Alaska, researchers on the lookout for water contamination around St. Lawrence Island have discovered elevated radiation levels in the waters of the Bering Sea. An August 2018 sample of water from the Bering Sea showed increased levels of cesium-137. The isotope is somewhat present in the ocean from open-air testing of nuclear weapons in the 1960s and 70s and normally registers around 2.0 becquerels per cubic meter. But this sample, again from last August, showed levels at 2.4 becquerels per cubic meter. Alaska Sea Grant agent Gay Sheffield said, It's a byproduct of nuclear fission, and it was among the radioactive isotopes released when the Fukushima nuclear reactor was damaged. He added that traditional tribal people's knowledge of water currents helped residents anticipate this change. 
over to Japan, where the released amount of cesium-137 and cesium-134 from the crippled nuclear reactors at the Fukushima facility reached over double compared to the previous year. 2017 showed a release of 471 million becquerels of radiation, and 2018, 933 million becquerels of cesium-137 and 134. This according to TEPCO's own documents. Radioactive cesium exceeding the state limit has been detected in fish caught off Fukushima Prefecture for the first time in about four years. Doesn't mean it wasn't there, just says it wasn't detected. Sale of rice from Fukushima Prefecture has rebounded, but only because the bulk of the annual harvest is designated for industrial use, mainly by convenience stores and restaurant chains, and simply labeled domestic product with no mention of Fukushima as being the point of origin. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. In Japan, it's not enough that Fukushima's three melted-down reactors continue to leak radioactivity into the water, into the air, that it's still spread around in the dirt in the area that despite Olympics pushing government lies about safety, the evacuees and residents of that area are placed in continual danger from the radioactive materials. But now it seems that if you want your own supply of radioactive material, you can buy it on the Japanese Internet. The Japan Atomic Energy Agency, or JAEA, has confirmed that radioactive materials were sold on an Internet auction site as depleted and yellowcake uranium. The Metropolitan Police Department, MPD, Consumer and Environment Protection Division, will launch a final phase investigation on suspicion that the sale violated the Act on the Regulation of Nuclear Source Material, Nuclear Fuel Material, and Reactors. Suspicion? What? You need further proof? The material in question was found to be sold on the Yahoo Japan Corporation Internet auction site in November of 2017 with the tagline of... 99% uranium. It was confiscated after the sale by the MPD and passed on for testing to the JAEA, which is based in the village of Tokai, Ibaraki Prefecture, northeast of Tokyo, near Fukushima. Results of an earlier simple test had shown that the materials were extremely likely to be depleted uranium and yellowcake uranium concentrate powder. Well, it might be depleted, but it ain't dead, and it's still dangerous, and whoopee! Nothing like a little bit of internet auction action to get those pro-nukers and possible terrorists going. And that's why, oh gosh, who do we blame this one on? I guess it's Yahoo Japan Corporation, and anybody who let that get up on the auction site. You are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. In Pakistan, former President Pervez Musharraf has said India could finish Pakistan with 20 nuclear bombs if Islamabad decides to launch even a single nuclear attack on the neighboring country. So don't do it. In Brazil, gunmen have attacked a convoy of trucks carrying uranium fuel to a nuclear power plant near the Brazilian city of Rio de Janeiro. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, I know who you are. You are a human being living on Earth who is concerned about the future of people, the environment, and life in its many forms. 
Have I got that right? And you already understand, or are coming to learn, that the radiation released by all aspects of the nuclear fuel and weapons cycle are toxic to life and incapable of being neutralized or safely stored until they're no longer a danger. That is why I produce Nuclear Hot Seat every week, to keep us informed about this hydra-headed nuclear monster in all its many forms. By knowing the truth, we can take informed action that, yes, takes time, energy, and money, but more and more often these actions are helping those who oppose nuclear to win. Nuclear Hot Seat continues to play a part in our international efforts against nuclear, but this audio pushback on the industry costs money, and that's why I'm asking for your help. Let's face it, if you value honest, verifiable information on nuclear issues, covered with continuity and context, delivered with attitude and as much humor as possible, then you have come to value Nuclear Hot Seat. So if you're grateful for the information you get from this program, show your support by sending us a donation of any size to help us meet our expenses. Be it a one-time gift or a monthly sustaining donation of any amount, it all helps keep the information flowing out to you, the listeners. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to send a donation of any size. And for an easy and expensive way to help out, you can send the show a monthly $5, the equivalent of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista. Know that whatever you can afford, you're helping to combat the nuclear menace in all of its forms by supporting Nuclear Hot Seat solid, footnoted, reliably sourced information. That makes me deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. The Battle of San Onofre continues as owners of the shutdown nuclear facility, Southern California Edison, keep pushing to load and abandon multiple Chernobyl's worth of radioactive material into five-eighths-inch thin storage canisters that will be deposited only 108 feet away from the Pacific Ocean. And there are even more problems than that, as you will hear. We talked with Nina Babiars, a board member of Public Watchdogs, which is a nonprofit safety watchdog group that has worked closely on San Onofre issues. Note that when we refer to CEP, it means Community Engagement Panel, a quarterly piece of bad nuclear theater where members of Southern California Edison and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission must endure the horror, the terrible pain of three-minute tongue lashings from concerned members of the public, who then have to shut up and sit down. Also, on March 25th, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission announced that it was fining the utility giant SCE $116,000 for violations of federal nuclear safety law. The dollar amount will be referred to in the interview. I spoke with Nina Babiars of Public Watchdogs on Monday, April 1st, and I wish that what she was saying was a joke, but it wasn't and it isn't. Nina Babiars, so good to have you with us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Levy. San Onofre is a mess. We know that. Where are we with this mess right now? What's the current situation? Well, you know, I'm a board member with Public Watchdogs, and we've been following this multifaceted scenario at San Onofre for years. But, you know, in the last eight or nine months, things have really really gotten interesting with the unfolding of a near 
catastrophic event for San Onofre, and that is a near-miss drop last August that has shut down the burial ever since. Meaning the burial of the so-called spent fuel rod. We call it the way it is. It's a nuclear waste dump, and the, the burial has been shut down since this near-catastrophic event last August 3rd, where a 100,000-pound container of radioactive nuclear waste was being lowered into the ground and got caught on a quarter-inch ledge for about an hour and a half. And so the workers, of course, that are were lowering this cannot see what they're doing because it's so radioactive that they're shielded from the container, and which means they're shielded from viewing what it is that they're doing. So they're actually lowering this, shall we say, blindly. And so they thought that the, the can was all the way to the bottom of the silo. It wasn't at all. It was, it was caught up on a quarter-inch ledge. So we could have had an 18-foot drop of 100,000 pounds of radioactive nuclear waste. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has since concluded that even though the can may not have been dropped, the fuel assembly, which of course houses the spent nuclear, radioactive nuclear fuel, very well could have been damaged. So there's a lot of factual information that has come to light as a result of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission called upon, pressured by public watchdogs and other groups, other safety advocate groups, pressuring the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to finally agreed after five weeks to come out and do an inspection last September. And so it has unfolded a number of facts regarding the nuclear waste burial site and how it is that they're doing the process by which they're doing it. One of the key facts that have come forward in the, the inspection and the subsequent Nuclear Regulatory Commission conducting these pre-decisional conferences and actually having public webinars with Holtec, the manufacturer of the cans, and Edison, you know, who has the license to bury this nuclear waste. So it's given the public an opportunity to really sort through some of this information. One of the most startling facts that came to light during this process over the last several months is that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC, validated in their cross-examination of Edison that each one of these cans that are going into the ground, each and every one of them are scored, as they put it, scored top to bottom. Now, when you say that they're scored, you mean that they are scratched? They're scratched, or some have called it gouged. The external surface of those cans have been damaged, and what we've come to find during this process is that all the cans are being damaged because as they lower them into the ground, just like the one that got hung up and that we had a you know a near miss drop, all of them in some way are toggled back and forth as they're being lowered into the ground and they're being scratched or scored was the term or gouged was also the term. And so our concern of public watchdogs, and we've been working with different subject matter experts, is that you know when you have 
that kind of damage on the exterior of the cans in an environment so close to the Pacific Ocean, only 108 feet from the Pacific Ocean, virtually at sea level, on an earthquake fault in a tsunami zone. The air, of course, is sea air and very corrosive. So when you have these cans that have been damaged, scratched, gouged, whatever you want to call it, it's the, the exterior covering of these cans has been permeated. It begins the process of stress corrosion cracking. And Edison and the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, is contending that this is something that takes a long time to unfold. And that's not necessarily true because what we have very unique in this situation is you've got these cans that are gored, scratched, gouged, sitting in salt water air. I remember in 1984, Levy, when I moved from Pittsburgh to Long Beach, my 1982 Toyota Corolla only had to sit out one winter in the salt sea air of Long Beach, California to lose all the paint on the front of the car. And that's what happens with that sea salt air. And so we're, we're very concerned about that process starting for a number of different reasons. One of them being, of course, that Edison House has absolutely no underground monitoring to tell if this process is starting, how far advanced it may be. There's no underground monitoring to monitor the structural integrity of these cans that are damaged and now in the ground. And what we also need to let people know is that these canisters only consist of five-eighths of an inch thick stainless steel. So we're not talking about something massive that can have a little scratch on it and, oh, well, it'll be fine. A scratch is significant in proportion to how thin that steel actually is. And I'd like to bring something else to the attention of your audience. You know, this is not the first time that the burial has been stopped. The burial started February 1st of 2018. In the middle of March, only six weeks into the first burial of the first four cans, Edison was inspecting the fifth can only to find out that at the bottom of the cans, there were some shims and bolts that were supposed to be holding the cans in in place that were broken. And so the burial stopped for the first time last March until they could get what they termed an independent engineering company who, you know, the Holtec, the manufacturer of the cans, was allowed to do that. That's Fox in charge of the hen house. Exactly. And they've never revealed, because they're a private company, they're not subject to FOIA requests, federal you know, information requests, because they're a private company, and we've made them, as to who was that quote-unquote independent uh, engineering company that gave Edison the green light. But my point to this being is that now that we know further through this investigation and inspection of the NRC, that these cans, all these cans are damaged being lowered in the ground. We know that the first four cans have both. They potentially have the same broken bolts and shims that they found on the fifth can, and also the gouging from being lowered into the ground like all the other cans. And then, of course, no monitoring system to check how bad the damage is, if the damage is, if the ventilation and cooling the radioactive nuclear waste in those four cans. So I consider those first 
four cans potentially being the perfect storm. They could potentially have both or all of the above, and that's very disconcerting. What I find truly shocking is that with all of the problems that you just enumerated, and they are legion at San Onofre with the spent fuel, with the canisters, with the behavior of Edison around it, there is still an official approval process in place to allow the restart of the loading of the Holtec thin canisters at San Onofre, which I certainly think is a really bad idea. And what's more disconcerting is that the pro-nuclear faction seems to be moving ahead with it with an assumption, if not an arrogance, that they are going to ultimately succeed in getting exactly what they want. Arrogance is one aspect of this, but it's enabled the hypocrisy of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to now actually consider re-evaluating the permit or the license uh, of these cans to allow that scratch and the gouging that we're talking about to be okay. Now, are you saying that the NRC is going to say, oh, well, as long as scratches have happened, we might as well make it okay so that there's no problem with the public coming in and, and having a complaint? Well, that's putting it in simple terms, but that's basically what they're doing. They're in the process right now of evaluating whether or not they're going to change the criteria. And so let's just lower the standards to the level of which the job is being done in an incompetent way. That's what they're doing if they approve this. And, and the burial supposedly isn't going to resume until they make a decision. But, I mean, what else would you call it? They're going to be lowering the standard to the incompetency of Edison and Holtec. That's like the reverse of the Peter principle. Instead of people rising to their own level of incompetence, it's lowering the standards until the incompetence is met by the new standards. That's right. Let's just set the criteria. Let's just set the bar a little lower. We'll all be doing the limbo rock. One thing I want to always bring to everyone's attention, whether they're a new listener to this topic or have been involved and quite savvy about this, that I don't want to lose sight of, and that is that we don't want to forget it. It's the same engineers that gave us the defective, what they called a like-for-like replacement generators at San Onofre, the brand new generators that were not like for like at all. It was brand new technology, untested, with safety features removed so that they could add, you know, more tubes to generate more electricity, to generate more money that rubbed together and gave us a radiation leak that closed the plant. I don't want people to lose sight of the fact that it's those same engineers that designed this burial plan and it's important to note that when this plant was still operating, that it had the worst safety record of any nuclear operating plant in the country. Well, it seems like they're still in the running to have that particular honor, dubious though it may be. Well, what is alarming now is in the process of these hearings, these pre-decisional conferences as the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is holding, in January, I believe, Edison had the audacity to say that they were guilty of some of these failures because they just didn't anticipate how large of a burial project this was going to be. 
Now, they're the ones that designed it, and these people are supposedly have all this great expertise in their careers. How could they possibly have underestimated the scope of this? So here we have, again, the same engineers that gave us the radiation leak designing this that made more mistakes and uh, significant failures that are now claiming that they didn't know how large of a scope of project this was going to be. It seems like they have very convenient ignorance. They just kind of slap it in, oh, gee, we didn't know, whenever it works for them. And we'll get to one of those points in a moment. Now, Edison is supposed to hold what are officially called community engagement panels to meet with the public about San Onofre, though I know the common phrase that I have heard is community enragement meetings because that's usually the way that community participants and watchdog groups such as yours feel as a result of participating in them. Talk to us about some of the things that happened at the most recent meeting between the public and the NRC and Southern California Edison. Well, this was a pretty unique meeting in a couple of ways. There was more than one person that incorporated into their public comments how unresponsive the panel members themselves are in asking questions and making comments or, you know, asserting criticism of Edison. And, you know, you've got a whole group of elected officials and community representatives sitting up there that are supposed to be looking out for the safety of their constituency that are sitting there like bumps on a log. And so everybody's pretty frustrated with that. So, you know, those were comments across the board of that frustration, including myself. But one thing that is, was unique is the two representatives from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Linda Howe and Scott Morris from Region 9, they're located down in Arlington, Texas, came out for this meeting. One of the people in public comment made the point why would they be coming out to meet with the public at an Edison-sponsored event? Why aren't they meeting directly with the public who's putting the bill for everything? In other words, why isn't the NRC operating as an independent watchdog regulatory agency as opposed to an adjunct and an add-on to what Edison is putting together there? Exactly. Exactly. We don't need, we shouldn't need somebody from Southern California Edison facilitating a meeting directly between the Nuclear Regulatory Commission representatives and the public. The public is who they're supposed to be representing for the primary and priority of of the public safety with regard to this particular issue of nuclear waste. So we don't need Edison in here. As you well know, the public was quite well informed of this issue, and obviously more so than, the, than some of the representatives that sit on that panel. There is one other issue that I'd really like to bring to the attention of your audience that I spoke about on Thursday. And it was very disturbing to me to go through the preliminary inspection report of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission on March 18th prior to the final special inspection report released on March 25th. So, you know, this precursor, I went through this document, and at the end of this document, there were observations and findings. And one of the observations that I noted at the end of this report 
was a review of employee concerns program. And within this section of review of employee concerns program, there was a potential weakness that was identified. And unfortunately, that potential weakness included, quote unquote, a perception of retaliation, a reluctance to report issues of concern and timely resolution of issues through the condition report process. And so what do we have here? We have the Nuclear Regulatory Commission identifying about the only way that we ever found out that we had a near miss drop last August the 3rd because it was readily apparent in the testimony that Tom Palmasano from Southern California Edison, who at the time of that near miss drop was the chief nuclear officer, actually lied on August the 9th to all the members of the community engagement panel, telling them in his presentation, he had the floor for about an hour before the whistleblower came forward. And Tom Palmasano from Edison actually had the audacity to sit there and tell this panel that they had stopped the burial due to maintenance and worker issues. You know, we actually have audio on that that came from a member of the audience, and we're going to play that right now. This San Clemente resident's name is Jeff Steinmetz, and he starts by playing an audio that he had on his iPhone of Tom Palmisano of Southern California Edison speaking at that August 9th meeting. We do periodically stop. That was San Clemente resident Jeff Steinmetz at the Community Engagement or Enragement meeting. 
that was pretty shocking, and it's clear the level of anger that that resident of San Clemente had about it. Well, Levy, if we hadn't had somebody like that whistleblower that came forward, we never would have had an inspection by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. We never would have had any of these findings. We never would have had any kind of quote-unquote corrective action. And we never would have the knowledge of some of these other uh, failures as they've been identified and violations of federal law. We never would have been aware of that. So, you know, one point I want to make is that that discovery of there being a culture of retaliation, because let's face it, we're talking about nuclear waste workers. So the retaliation we're talking about is if they witness something that is of concern of public safety with regard to bearing radioactive nuclear waste. They're going to be filled with a fear of losing their job, and that never made it to the final inspection report. That never made it to corrective action. That never made it to a penalty of Edison saying, you can, by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, you can't do that. You can't get away with that. You can't suppress your employees from coming forward if they witness a public safety violation. And so what are we doing but continuing deceptive communication in the culture with Edison that this is unacceptable? And I think it's interesting to point out that for reasons that I think are sealed behind a legal agreement, the whistleblower from August 9th no longer works in the nuclear industry. He doesn't, and I'd like to invite anybody that does work in the nuclear industry to visit Public Watchdog's website for another reason. We've always, from day one, had a button on our website with regard to whistleblowers, and of course we've had people come forward with information, and it has resulted in action, and that action has resulted in information we wouldn't have had otherwise publicwatchdogsplural.org. Let's give a listen now to some of the testimony that did take place. This is Mike Aguirre. In law, when a witness lies in a material part of his testimony, the jury is told that they can disregard his testimony as a whole. And Tom, on August the 9th, you lied twice. You told the audience that the downloading had stopped to give a crew a rest, give the crew a rest. And then when the whistleblower came forward, you lied again. You said the reason uh, that you hadn't reported it that night was it wasn't that big of a deal, but you had already made the agreement with the NRC that it was a big deal and that SCE wasn't going to do any more downloading. You really need to go, Tom. You really need to go. And you need to do this because there's too much at stake and we can't trust you anymore in light of your lies. For the two NRC people, we have lost complete confidence in you and the NRC. The two of you can't even get your story straight. Linda says, oh, the reporting's no big deal. Reporting violation is no big deal. Scott says, oh, that's why the reporting is such a big deal. That's what you said. You said it. You said it at the hearing on the 25th. 
And Scott Connect said the opposite. There's five reasons why we cannot trust you and the NRC with the safety of our community. Number one, you allowed Edison to use a too small practice canister. You allowed Edison to download a pen-supported shim canister that wasn't even approved by the NRC. You allowed SCE not to report the August 3rd event for over three weeks, even after the whistleblower had come forward. You kept it secret with them and kept it from the public. You are refusing to produce documents under the Freedom of Information Act and you have been sued. And I want to ask both of you, please do not destroy any of your emails, texts, or any other records of communications because your depositions will be getting taken out here in San Diego. And finally, how disgraceful of you to only present yourself to the public at an SEC-controlled event. You have never presented yourself to the public. You are federal regulators. We are paying your salaries. You've taken an oath to our country, and now you're here as an appendage of this private corporation that has breached the trust of the people of this community. That was San Diego-based attorney Mike Aguirre. Donna Gilmore of SanOnofreSafety.org waved two lemons in the air as she spoke to the panel, and Donna, as always, very quickly and very pointedly, makes her point. All they cared about is getting the fuel out of the pool so they could save on overhead costs and get their hands on that $5 billion. They have the worst safety record in the country. Uh, they, they, the, the steam generators were lemons. This system is a lemon. We need solutions here. The ever-succinct and always powerful Donna Gilmore of SanOnofreSafety.org. Now let's hear from Charles Langley, who is the executive director of Public Watchdog and who spoke at the hearing. A lot of us, when we think of rules, we make a distinction between rules and the rule of law. And the Code of Federal Regulations is regulatory law. These are more than rules. And many of these laws have criminal penalties. And when you don't enforce the law, what happens is that it increases the probability that the law will be broken. For example, fining $116,000, which I think is the maximum you're allowed to charge, on a $5 billion project it seems kind of silly. It's like you demanding a nice shiny new dime from me or anyone else in this audience. It's a pittance to Southern California Edison. So it creates the potential for moral hazard. But more importantly is when a regulatory agency doesn't enforce really important laws. And one of the really important laws is 72.75 Code of Federal Regulations. This law required Southern California Edison to report that unsecured load event that happened on August 3 and to do it within an hour. They waited 42 days, 24 hours, okay? 42 days. So they were 41 days late. There was a July 22 event, no report made. 
Now, I've looked at these event reports. I look at them almost every day, and I've seen people reporting kombucha in the company refrigerator at a nuclear power plant because it had 1% alcohol and was an alcoholic beverage and therefore had to be reported. And yet we have a near miss of 100,000 pounds, and it's not reported. And not only that, what's really terrifying, what's really, really horrifying is that the NRC has chosen not to enforce the law. They said, we're not going to enforce 72.75 because Southern California Edison wasn't aware of the law. Now, Southern California Edison has 189 attorneys on its staff, and one of the fundamental premises of the law is that ignorance of the law is no excuse. So I'm asking you now, please do your job, enforce the law, and impose criminal penalties when criminal laws are violated. Thank you. That was Charles Langley, the executive director of Public Watchdogs. I like to say, quoting Shakespeare, that if all the world is a stage, the nuclear industry and the NRC and all of those people make the worst theater going. It strikes me that these community enragement panels are really just theater to try and convince outsiders who are not paying much attention to what's happening that Edison is behaving as a good citizen and they're meeting with the public and all that, where I don't know that anything actually comes of this. Do you think that these meetings and what gets said there has any impact at all on the actions of either Southern California Edison or the Nuclear Regulatory Commission? Well, I think it's apparent from the other evening that it's a clear venue for the public to vent their frustration with the failures of Edison and the fact that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission no longer has the objectivity to regulate the industry that they're slated to regulate. Yes, but besides the venting and some of it, as we've heard, was extremely powerful and pointed and important. Do you think that it has the power to do anything for at or to the NRC or Southern California Edison, or is it just palliative to let the public blow off steam and think they're accomplishing something when ultimately the fix is in and nothing's going to change? Well, one thing we have witnessed, and that is, you know, uh, one thing we say at the end of every presentation that we give, Libby, is just tell every single buddy that you know. And so the, the one thing I know has had an impact with regard to these meetings is that more people getting educated on the issue. There are more people talking about it. There are more people that understand that this is a very time-sensitive topic and risk to our community. There are people that are putting pressure on their elected officials to show some leadership skills here and step forward. So it's having positive repercussions in other ways outside of the Edison-controlled meeting forum. And I think that's a very, very good thing. Do you think that the approval is going to be granted to SCE, Southern California Edison, to resume the loading of the canisters. Is that imminent? And do you think there's any way to break through this logjam, this unholy trio of SCE, NRC, and Holtec holding our futures hostage here in Southern California and beyond and finding some way to get real public power and strength that can turn them around and really make a substantive change instead of just delaying the inevitable? 
Well, that's quite a compound question, but you know, I yeah, I think that since uh, you know the Nuclear Regulatory Commission said that's what they're considering, that's probably what they're going to do. They've probably already been predetermined, just like a lot of things behind closed doors and in secret. That's what we've got, and you know, people have an opportunity to make a difference, and we are certainly going to pursue every avenue that we possibly can, both legally and with public advocacy to wake up the beast and get people more aware of the fact that we cannot afford to have this in our community. You know, we have a situation where we're not going to get a second chance at this. The window of opportunity of changing it is upon us. This is our moment. People need to pick up the phone, tell everybody that they possibly can to get the word out that if the NRC does take that action, that this is unacceptable and they are accountable to somebody, and that is the public that they're supposed to be protecting. And after all, the public does have a right to know. And uh, we're going to continue doing the outreach of publicwatchdogs.org. And there's a lot of great information on our website easy to read and it's put in a way that people can clearly understand. So I'm hoping that each one of your listeners will take on their own little leadership role because we each have a responsibility to protect our environment. And this is our calling right now. It's upon us right now. And it's our responsibility to do something. And uh, if that's to say to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that their decisions are unacceptable, then we need to come together and do that. Nina Babiars, you and Charles Langley at Public Watchdogs are doing a great job as advocates for public safety as regards San Onofre. Keep going, keep us informed, and thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Lady. That was Nina Babiars, a board member of Public Watchdogs. You can learn more about the problems at San Onofre by checking out their website at publicwatchdogs.org and also the sharp-eyed observations of Donna Gilmore at sananofresafety.org. Activist shout-outs. First, this sad note. Our condolences to Bob Alvarez who is best known on this program as the Senior Scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies. His wife, Kitty Tucker, passed on the evening of March 30th. In 1963, at the age of 19, she was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease and given a few months to live. But, oh, what a life she went on to live as a mother, loving wife, and warrior for justice. By 1965, She was jailed in Alabama for trying to register African-American voters. She helped found a medical clinic for the poor that's still open, fought for women's rights, became an attorney, and helped organize a successful lawsuit on behalf of the parents of Karen Silkwood, a nuclear worker that won in the Supreme Court. The list goes on. More importantly, she raised her children with unconditional love, and Bob says that she opened the door to a life of meaning to him. She will be sadly missed. In other activist information, April 10 is Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network's 7th Annual Becquerel Awareness Day. It's an opportunity to focus on the dangers of man-made radiation as it affects our health and environment. The message 
is that nuclear power is a dangerous, outdated source of energy production. Thankfully, there are much safer choices, and Fan believes that, by understanding the consequences of nuclear, we can expedite the transition to alternative energy that is genuinely clean, green, and sustainable. Becquerel Awareness Day is a collective push to do just that. Seeds for Becquerel Awareness Day began to take root in 2012 in response to the ongoing Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. By 2013, more people took interest via FAN's website, and since 2014, FAN has hosted Facebook events that have featured teleconferences, petition signings, videos, and more. This year, FAN's heroic anime characters Geiger Girl and Becquerel Boy will share their unique anti-nuclear message online from April 10 through 14. But they need your help. Please, when you see these posts, like them and invite your friends to the Becquerel Awareness Day Facebook page. Also, you should request to join Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network's Facebook book and follow them on Twitter at FFAN, the number four, the letter U. Fan for you. If you do this now, you'll be sure to be in the loop by April 10 and part of the process of spreading the word, which Fan really needs your help with. The Olympic Committee for the 2020 Tokyo Radioactive Olympics has enlisted the help of Japan's most beloved anime characters to promote this toxic, dangerous event. Fan can't compete with their budget, so they need your help to spread the word. Again, you can contact Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network through their Facebook page or at ffan.us. And Nuclear Hot Seat needs your help to get our episode out on social media every Wednesday. We spread the posting of the show out to a number of different people on Wednesdays so that nobody gets put in Facebook jail, you know? And we have so many places the show has to go now that we need a few more people to help us out. It will take you no more than 10 minutes, and it's a lot of fun with the people you'll be in touch with and some of the places where we will send you on the internet. If you're interested, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com or a message to me on the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page. Here's today's final thought. I'm just back from the Three Mile Island 40th Anniversary Week. And it's going to take me another week to edit the more than 20 hours worth of audio that I took into next week's show. But I want to take right now to acknowledge the support and love I received from so many listeners because you are the ones who made this trip possible. I also salute all the activists, residents, academicians, and institutions around TMI on the ground who made a full week of commemorative events possible. It is not easy to pull off a 40-year anniversary of a nuclear disaster, especially when so much effort has been made to hide or discredit its consequences, especially to the health of the local community. But these events filled an entire week, and those who showed up, including an encouraging number of students, showed that not only is there a strong and growing voice for TMI survivors, but that there will be a new generation coming up through the ranks to take on the many battles. First, to close down the reactor for good, which is being maniacally promoted under false premises to a possible bailout by state taxpayer funds, and then to deal with the waste of not only the currently operating reactor, 
but the one that melted down in 1979 and has yet to be cleaned up. It's all just sitting there, folks. You'll have the full story next week, or as full as I can fit into an hour. But know that the truth about Three Mile Island is getting out there. We can only hope that appropriate action follows, and soon. Full story on next week's show. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 2nd, 2019. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, and our friend Hervé Courtois, miningawareness.wordpress.com, lohud.com, wamc.org, miaminewtimes.com, Cape Cod Times, and the superb reporting of Christine Legere, beyondnuclear.org, remm.nlm.gov, interestingengineering.com, fukushima-diary.com, japantimes.co.jp, asahi.com, mainichi.jp, news18.com, the BBC, Reuters, thebarrentsobserver.com, Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, and Dr. Gordon Edwards, the soul-dead cubicle drones who push propaganda under the guise of writing press releases for World Nuclear News, and the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Always good for a laugh. Thanks to all of you for listening, and a big shout-out wherever you are around the world in 123 countries on six continents and counting. And of course, a big welcome to those of you who listen on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. You show your love for life on this planet by being willing to know the truth and then, hopefully, acting upon it. If you haven't already, go to our Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page. Like it, share it, respond to a post. If you leave a comment, the chances are good that I will be responding as well. You can sign up for one email a week from Nuclear Hot Seat, giving you a link to each week's episode and a brief pricey on exactly what's in it by going to the website and signing up in the yellow opt-in box. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, Take a moment to send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. We really appreciate your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2019, Libby, Halevi, and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, Reminding you that every nuclear reactor creates deadly radioactive waste that lasts forever. So for any new deal to be genuinely green, it must not include nuclear. Period. Okay, you just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.